Well, this morning we have the joy and the privilege of opening up God's Word together, of opening up a book and expecting to hear God speak to us. And not just expecting to hear God speak to us, but to encounter Jesus, in whose face is the very reflection of God Himself. This is, this is a holy moment that we have together. Well, this morning we're going to be opening up to the book of Mark in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 3, versículos 7 a 19. We've been in the book of Mark now for a couple months, and this is a book written by a man named Mark, a man whose burden was to answer the question, who is Jesus? This is the most important question that we could ever ask, and it is the first question that we should ask in every scenario, because who Jesus is informs the kinds of decisions we make, the behavior that we exhibit, the words that we speak, the motivations of our hearts. And in chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus came announcing that, that he had come to call people into God's kingdom, that the kingdom had drawn near to people in himself. But in today's passage, the question relating to who Jesus is is what kind of life does God call kingdom people into? What kind of life does God call people whom he's called into the kingdom into? Or in other words, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does a life of following Jesus look like? That's a big question. So, without any further ado, let's read the passage at hand and begin to explore what the answer to that question might be. Beginning in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea. And from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might 
send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. This is God's word. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, would you still our hearts? Would you take captive our distracted minds? Would you awaken our affections that are so easily impressed by things other than you? Would you open the eyes of faith in our hearts that we might see Jesus anew, behold him afresh, love him more than we did coming in here today because of the great love with which he loved us, because he set his eyes upon us and desired that we be with him. Lord, would you reintroduce to us your son, Jesus Christ, again today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This passage before us, it presents us with a contrast. A contrast between this massive gaggle of people that's gathered around and then a group of 12 men. 12 men that Jesus chooses. It's a contrast between the crowds in verses 7 through 12, the first six verses of this text, and the called in verses 13 through 19, the crowds and the called. I'll throw it out up front. Those are the two points today. Very simple separation of this text. And Mark is painting this contrast on purpose for us because he's showing us through this contrast what kind of life Jesus calls kingdom people into. He shows us what most people thought it meant to follow Jesus and what it actually means to follow Jesus. This this contrast is a similar contrast to one that's painted in a children's book by perhaps one of the greatest children's book authors of all time, Roald Dahl, in a book that he wrote called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You might have read this book, and if you haven't read the book, then you've probably seen the movie or the remake or the remake of the remake, because nowadays there's always remakes of every good movie that ever was. But in the original film version, there are five children who win a sweepstakes that has been put on by a man named Willy Wonka, who's this eccentric, zany, massively successful chocolatier who runs this chocolate empire, and he invites all five children to come in, but he's got a secret because he's going to give one of them his entire empire. And he has his own qualifications for who will get this empire, whom he will trust to run his chocolate factory. 
And listen, all five kids loved candy. They all loved chocolate. They all, they all were drawn to Willy Wonka, but only one of them could be trusted with the future of the factory. And it was the one child who understood it wasn't about what he could get out of Willy Wonka. It wasn't the one who enjoyed his benefits the most, but the one who understood the value of the thing itself that that Wonka would entrust his empire with. Not the one who, who... jumped into a river of chocolate, or the one who, who ate the forbidden candy and blew up like a blueberry. All these, all these kids took themselves out of the running because they proved that they were in it for the benefits. Charlie proved that he understood the value of the Wonka name. And listen, to be called into God's kingdom is primarily not about getting to enjoy the benefits. Though there are benefits, benefits that are greater than any we could have ever hoped for, that's not what following Jesus is about. Listen, to be called by Jesus is to be called to Jesus and for Jesus. To be called by Jesus is to be called to Jesus and for Jesus to him, to know him, and to love him, and for him, meaning for his glory. How have you understood what Jesus has called you to? If you're not a Christian, how have you understood what it means to be a Christian? This text helps us to understand that and to maybe even correct mistaken understandings or reorient our hearts and minds toward how Jesus defines what it means to follow him. So, like I said, two points, the, 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 the crowds and the called. And, and as we look at the second point, the called, we see Jesus give directives to these 12 men that begin to open our eyes to what it means practically to follow Jesus. So, let's begin with the crowds in chapter 3, verse 7. But as we do, can I ask you to just look to, look to God and ask His Spirit to humble your heart? Because this, this is a moment where, where we, we're going to ask ourselves what benefits of Jesus we're desiring more than Jesus himself. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but purposefully, because I want us to be able to position our, ourselves not so that we're going, yeah, this sermon isn't really for me. I really get it. I've been a Christian for three or four or five years or however long, and I get this. I know the answer to this question. Let's not assume or presume any of that. Let's humbly position ourselves before God's Word and ask His Spirit to do work in our hearts and illuminate anything that might be in our hearts that's worth illuminating. So, with that, look down at verse 7 with me. Mark says that Jesus withdrew 
with his disciples to the sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. Because a great crowd followed. And, and, and this crowd followed from five different regions to the north, the south, and the east of Galilee. As many as, get this, as many as a hundred miles away. These people are traveling by foot, at best by, by donkey or camel. A hundred miles to see Jesus. And he gets into a boat. He asks his disciples to, to get him a boat so that he can stand and preach from the boat. And, and chapter 1 tells us that's why he came, to preach. That was, a, that was a, the functional purpose for why he came. So he, he's, he has this crowd pressing around him, and he needs to get away from the press of the crowd. So he gets into a boat and, and, and tethers it several meters offshore so that he can teach from the boat to keep people. There's a moat between the people and him so they can't press in on him. And the reason why they were following him is telling here. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says that when they all heard what Jesus was doing, they came and followed him. Not, not when they heard what he was saying or, or not when they realized who he was. It was when they heard what he was doing. Ooh, what he was doing is... Looks pretty beneficial. I'd, I'd like to get some of that. Verse 10 reminds us of what exactly he had been doing. It says, for he had healed many. So all who had diseases, or that word for diseases is affliction. So all who, who were suffering pressed to touch him. They all wanted the benefits of Jesus. Now, if you are sick or hurting, is it a, a bad thing to want to be relieved of it? No. <laughs> not, not at all. I don't want to seem unsympathetic here. But, but this was Jesus. This was Jesus, the one whom the voice from heaven rang out saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He had come not as a mere miracle vending machine. His healings instead were, were a neon arrow illuminating, pointing to who he is. His miracles were, were his teaching with flesh on them to, to demonstrate and to give veracity to what he was teaching which, when understood, should have resulted in repentance and faith and in worship of him. But Mark makes no comments about the faith of the crowd because Jesus' miracles just produced in them a desire for, for more miracles. Just a desire to get more from him. See, this crowd is presented as a crowd following Jesus around, but they were not followers of Jesus. There's a clear distinction. Author Jeremy Treat says, the minute that you reduce Jesus to a means to an end, he's no longer a savior, but a stepping stool. And you're not worshiping him, you're using him. Jesus is not the means to your goal. He is the goal. 
Each person in the crowd followed Jesus for himself or for herself. Self-interest drove their mania to get to him. They were using him as a stepping stool. Let me ask you, friend, are you using Jesus as a stepping stool in any way in your life? What, what is your goal that you're using Jesus to get to? If you, if you ask yourself, what is it that you really want at this moment in time? What do you really desire? In your heart, do, do you view Jesus as, as the vending machine that holds what you really want? And you hope that by him or through him, you, you, you can get to that. And that's, that's what your heart is really set on. That's what your eyes are set on. And wherever that's the case, again, like I said, we, we need to position ourselves to, to be humble and to receive God's grace here. Because wherever that's the case, you're missing what it means to follow Jesus. You're missing who Jesus really is. Now, interestingly, in this text, there is a group who does understand who Jesus is, and with crystal clarity, it's demons. Interesting. Terrifyingly interesting. Look at verses 11 and 12. The, the focus here isn't on the exorcisms that Jesus performed, <laughs> but that the impure spirits, the demons, recognized Jesus. Look at, look at verse 11 again. They saw him and immediately said, you are the son of God. That there is no higher Christological confession in the book of Mark. We hear that, we hear that confession from the voice of the Father in his baptism. We, 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 hear, it, we hear it from demons again in another place. We hear it again from the Father to this private group again later in the book. And then the only other time we hear it from a human is the Roman centurion at the crucifixion of Jesus. This is, this is the fullness of the revelation of who Jesus is, and the demons get it. Listen, don't miss this. Those who exist in the spiritual realm and had existed for millennia, who had seen God and who knew who God is, they saw the reflection of God in Jesus. But friends, the point in verses 7 through 12 is that neither the, the crowds nor the demons were followers of Jesus. Although the demons, they correctly understood Jesus' identity, they didn't worship him, they hated him. And although the crowds didn't hate Jesus, they used him for their own self-interest. So neither represent what it is to be a follower of Jesus, not, not merely knowing who he is or being okay with him but just wanting his benefits. Neither is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But in verses 13 through 19, Jesus calls 12 men and he tells us what it means to truly follow him. So the second point, second half of this text, the called, the crowds, and now the called. And Jesus retreats from the lake to a nearby mountain, and he usually ascended a mountain to go and be alone with God. 
And he did here go to be alone, but he took 12 guys with him. And, and he gathers them around him, and he does two things. First, he names them. Secondly, he describes what it will mean to be his followers. Now, it's, it's this second thing where we're going to spend the most of the remainder of our time, but, but I don't want us to miss what's happening in the naming here. He names them apostles. He names them apostles. Look at verse 14. And he appointed the twelve whom he named apostles. Jesus gave this name to only these twelve. And then one other guy in Acts 1 after Judas betrayed Jesus. But only 12 guys, only 12 people would receive this designation. The, the number 12 was symbolic because it, it was the same number as the number of tribes in Israel. And Israel had failed to receive God's promises. And we're at a point in time where there had been 400 years of God's silence toward Israel. So Israel, as God's people, had seemed to, to, to fall out of the favor of God's promises. But here we have 12 men being chosen by the Messiah, representing the reconstitution of God's people. Je Jesus, Jesus would form the foundation of the church after his death and resurrection through these 12 guys. And that's what he's doing right now. In this moment, when he calls these 12 and calls them, names them apostles, he is building the foundations for his church. Pause for a moment and think about that. At this moment, on a mountain, early in Jesus' ministry, he was already building his church. He was building this church. A couple thousand years ago on a mountainside with 12 guys laying the foundations for the church that would reshape history through his gospel. That's a powerful realization, isn't it? Now, who were these 12 guys? Yeah, they must have been something pretty special, right? <laughs> you know the answer to that. No, they weren't. They were very imperfect humans, like us. And, and, it, and it wasn't even, even that they arrived imperfect, and then all of a sudden became like glorified, incredible super apostles. No, they actually continued to be very imperfect throughout Jesus' ministry. We'll find that throughout the book of Mark. Actually, they just stumble over themselves over and over again. And we find Jesus being patient with them over and over again. So why did Jesus choose them? Well, all that Mark tells us, look at verse 13, is that he called to himself those whom he desired. I love that. Because that is a reflection of the character of God in that statement right there. He called them because he desired them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8, God tells the nation of Israel why he called them out of all the other nations and all the other peoples on the earth. He says, I did not set my love upon you because you were the biggest. In fact, you were this tiny little people in slavery in Egypt, barely a people at all. 
He said, I didn't call you. I didn't set my love upon you because you were the best available candidates. He says, no. In Deuteronomy 7, 8, he says, he says, I loved you because I have loved you. Literally. I've loved you because I chose to set my love upon you. He knows you. He knows these 12 guys in all their imperfection, all your sinfulness. In fact, look down at their list of names in verses 16 through 19. He doesn't just name them apostles. He actually gives them nicknames. This, this portrays that Jesus isn't, isn't some taskmaster to his followers. He isn't just some, some ruler and leader. He, he becomes the friend of those he calls. He gives Simon the nickname Peter, which means rock, which will actually be symbolic of the role that he will play in the founding of the church in Matthew chapter 16. But, but Peter was actually a name, actually it wasn't a name in Greek. We, we think of it as a name because it's a very common name nowadays, but in Greek and Aramaic, the languages they spoke back then, nobody was called Peter. So, so he says, Simon, I'm going to call you the rock. And then he looks at James and John, and he calls them the sons of thunder, which in today's parlance would be like calling them thunder and lightning. And most commentators think that, that the reference here is to they're, they're, these, these guys cause commotion. They're sort of loose cannons. They're like bulls in a china shop. And they prove to be that. Jesus knows the kind of character and personality that these guys have. And, and, and it's not reflective of, of perfection and, and idealism. He goes, James and John, you guys are kind of knuckleheads. The other Simon, he, he calls Simon the Zealot, which isn't a reference to the political party of the Zealots, but saying that he knows that Simon will be somebody who's zealous for the law, zealous for God's kingdom. Judas, Iscariot, as a reference to the, the region where Judas came from, which was, which was Kerioth, which actually connected him with the political movement in that area, which wasn't necessarily a good one. So Jesus looks at these guys, and he knows their imperfections, and he knows, he looks forward into the future, and he sees that Peter, the rock, will deny him. And he knows that Thomas will doubt him. And he knows that James and John will be ambitious for their own glory, kind of like the crowds. He knows that when he's arrested, all 12 of them will run away and flee. And he called them because he loved them. Because he desired them. Same is true of you, friend. Jesus has called you. He's called you because he has set his love upon you. And that, as simple as that is, it's true. If he has called you, he's called you because he loves you. He doesn't call sinners to himself to magnify their qualifications, but to magnify his grace. He calls sinners to himself to magnify his grace. Once again, we're learning who Jesus is. He's a gracious Lord. 
And once He has called us, once He has called us, then He tells us what it means to follow Him. Track with that. Once He's called us, then He tells us what it means to follow Him. Think back to the Willy Wonka illustration at the beginning. Wonka was searching for a child who fit the description he was looking for. Jesus makes us into the description he's looking for. That's not the basis for his calling of us. Isn't he good? He doesn't call us because we've already achieved to some standard that he expects of us. He calls us out of grace and then calls us into what it looks like to follow him. He doesn't call those who sufficiently desire him. You and I know this. Saving faith initially is very often weak faith. Stuttering faith. Our love for Jesus doesn't qualify us. Our, our love for Je Jesus is formed in us by Jesus. So, Jesus gives three instructions for following him truly. Let's look at those, those, three, those three instructions to us of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. The first, to be a follower of Jesus, to be called to follow him means to be called to be with Jesus. Look at verse 14. And he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. Interestingly, Jesus only calls these 12 guys apostles one more time in the rest of the book of Mark, in chapter 6, verse 40. One more time. Much more often, he calls them disciples. In fact, he calls them disciples 40 times. 40 times. But not only them. The disciple is the most frequent title for, for someone who has come to be a citizen in God's kingdom. In the New Testament, we're called Christians three times. We, we are called believers 15 times. We're called disciples 235 times. This is the primary title of somebody who's come to follow Christ. And though these guys have a special role in the eventual founding of the church, they're fundamentally disciples like us. So the instructions Jesus gives them apply equally to us. And at the most basic level, a disciple follows someone. Well, that's the definition of a disciple, someone who follows someone else. And their discipleship is based on the person whom they're following in order to be with them, to learn from them, to become like them. Again, Jeremy Treat summarizes so well for us that the greatest thing about Jesus is Jesus. The greatest thing about Jesus is Jesus. While there are many benefits that come from Christ, nothing compares with knowing Christ and being in his presence. Paul said this so eloquently in Philippians 3.8. You might know this, this verse. He says, I count everything, everything else as loss because of the, surpass, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. 
Everything else is loss. Whatever other benefit I might have in this life, it is as nothing compared with knowing him. The greatest thing about Jesus is Jesus. Following Jesus is, a ba- is about following Jesus. Loving him, enjoying him, worshiping him, being called to him and for him. Wonderfully, when we experience the greatness of Jesus in his presence, the benefits of following him then flow like a river bursting through a dam. But when we seek his benefits without enjoying him, we find a rather dry riverbed. You ever find yourself feeling like a dry riverbed, seeking whatever's in that vending machine, and just feeling like, I can't get at it. Well, perhaps it's because you're not starting with Jesus. Perhaps it's because you have a lackluster affection for Him. It's not wrong to ask. It's not wrong to want. But it is wrong if in reality your love is for the gift rather than the giver. That's what we need to see. That's what we need to understand. That, that even a gift as, as grand as salvation itself, and yes, this, this would include salvation itself, because if our goal, if our desire, what we really want is salvation, that then if money could save me from my sins, or if politicians could save me from my sins, that then, then I would presumably happily be a disciple of either. Whoever's offering the best product, I'll go and follow them. Whoever meets my desire the best, I'll go and follow them. But following Jesus is about following Jesus. That is the point here. Jesus is the gift. And so the first and primary and essential and fundamental and central activity of a disciple of Jesus is spending time with Jesus. We cannot get away from that. We cannot forget that. But how do we do that? Well, one author helpfully says it very succinctly. He says, we encounter Jesus through his word, by his spirit, in the context of his church. In the context of his people. Through his word, by his spirit, in the context of his church. So, don't discount the cumulative effect of sitting under the preached word Sunday in and Sunday out. Even if you don't have this massive applicational moment every single Sunday where you walk away going, man, thank you, Lord, for convicting me in this particular manner. Don't discount the cumulative effect of meeting Jesus Sunday in and Sunday out. Approach your reading of God's word as a meeting with Jesus. Open up your Bible. Whenever you do, and, and I would submit that, that while the, the time and the how and the length, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, I, how that can vary. Opening up your word and meditating on God's word is an essential activity of a Christian. But when you do, expect to meet Jesus, to encounter God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Spend time with him, not merely reading words on a page. 
Come to small group meetings expecting your friends to redirect your eyes to Jesus, to to reorient your heart and mind to see life and to live life through the lens of his gospel. Literally, spend more time with Jesus in prayer. Talk to him. Spend time with God in prayer. As a disciple, you were called to spend time with Jesus, and what a wonderful thing to be called to. The second thing that Jesus calls his disciples to do is to preach. Look at the end of verse 14. 14, that he might send them out to preach. And we'll, we'll say much more about this one through, through the rest of this sermon series. So the only thing I'll say about this one is actually something regarding the, the first instruction. Proclaiming Jesus happens as a result of spending time with Jesus. The, the, the same is true of the third instruction when we get to it. But if you're finding it difficult to tell others about Jesus... Go back and spend more time with Jesus. If you find yourself preaching Jesus or telling others about Jesus in an angry and judgmental and frustrated way, go back and spend more time with Jesus. If you do find yourself talking about Jesus, but, but what you say about Jesus sounds more like a political debate, go back and spend more time with Jesus. Commentator Craig Keener says that before they would be ready to preach the good news, they had to spend time with Jesus and learn to pattern their lives on him. If we do not follow their example, our proclamation will be like loudspeakers blaring meaningless propaganda. And isn't that the truth? Far be it from us to be those kinds of disciples whose message sounds very different from the actual message of Jesus in the Bible, one that's empty of grace or compassion, one that's speaking a different truth than the one we see Jesus teaching, or one that's absent entirely. So like I said, that's all I'm going to say about that second one, because we're going to dive deep into that in the rest of the book of 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 Mark. Dear, oh dear. The third instruction, the third distinction, characteristic of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that we're called to minister in the power of Jesus. So called to be with Jesus, called to preach the message of Jesus, called to minister in the power of Jesus. Look at verse 15. Sent them out to have authority to cast out demons. Jesus gave them his authority. His authority, which, which is synonymous with his, his power to cast out demons. But, but they would eventually also heal and comfort and do many other things in Jesus' name. So we'll just say here that Jesus calls them as his disciples to minister in the power of Jesus, which is what he's called us to do. To not simply receive from him, but to take what we have in him and to graciously and courageously and compassionately and to selflessly give it to others. Both to other disciples within this local church and to our unbelieving neighbors in the city that he sent us into. 
And notice, this is a missional text here. Jesus is sending them out. It's a commissioning of the apostles to do his work outside of the area within which they're currently standing. There's a missional component to this, to to do ministry among our neighbors, to take the, the power and the compassion and the grace and the preaching of Jesus to our neighbors. But once again, we'll spend much much time in the rest of this book talking about what it looks like to do ministry in Jesus' power. And, 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 and we'll look at Jesus' third instruction here, once again, in light of his first instruction. Okay? Because Jesus, because Christian ministry that doesn't begin with Jesus risks not being Christian ministry at all. The disciples learned this firsthand in chapter 9. Again, I said we're going we're gonna to get there eventually. These very same ordinary, imperfect, sinful men, they attempt to cast out a demon, yet in their own strength in chapter 9, and they fail miserably. Miserably. So friend, the, the power and the authority for ministry, it is a deferred authority. It's a deferred power. It comes from Jesus. And it has nothing to do with with saying in Jesus' name as though it were a secret code. That's not what what it means here. It has to do with trusting in Jesus. It has to do with having had spent time with Jesus. One who spends little time with Jesus will find little effectiveness in their ministry for Jesus. One who spends little time with Jesus will find little effectiveness in their ministry for Jesus. But if you do spend enough time with somebody, they start to rub off on you, don't they? You start to act like them. You start to say the things that they say. You do the things that they do. One pastor says that To be a disciple of Jesus, very simply, means to become more like Jesus every day in every way. See, doing ministry in Jesus' name really is embodied in in being like Jesus in your everyday actions. And how can we do that if we're not spending time with Jesus? Your words and your actions, your, your ministry will begin to reflect whosoever disciple you are. So there's an implication here. If you are spending a whole lot of time thinking about and and spending time with any particular person, your words and your actions will begin to reflect them. And so at times, our words and our actions suggest that we're acting more as the disciples of other people than of Jesus. So do, do you function as though you are a disciple of someone else besides Jesus? Wh- whose disciple do your words and actions reflect that you are? You see, we can be disciples of Christ, but, but begin to, to sway and to, and to merge off trail and to live lives that reflect a little bit more of somebody else or another group Maybe it's whoever is currently trending, you're, and you're just prone to following 
whoever everybody else is, is following and listening to. We're prone to being disciples of, of evangelical culture, do, doing, doing things that, that other Christians are doing, not because it's something that Jesus had commanded or is in line with his character, but because that's just what Christians these days do. Oh, we can be disciples of ourselves, of our own opinions, of our own expertise, of our own experiences, seeing ourselves as, as, as the authority, modeling our lives based on what we feel and what we want. We can rub off on ourselves. We can be disciples of a Jesus who doesn't exist. We can style our, our image of Jesus after what we want him to be rather than who he is. And we can say, well, if Jesus were here, he would do this or that. And it begins to become a reflection of Jesus that bears no resemblance to the historical, fully God, fully man, Jesus the Christ who lived and died and was raised for our salvation. Whose disciple do you tend to be other than Jesus? But if we are committed to following Jesus, if we are committed to being his disciples, to being called to him and for him rather than merely being called to enjoy his benefits, then we must spend time with him and foster a love for him because oftentimes, and get this, if you haven't been listening until now, listen right now, because oftentimes doing ministry in the power of Jesus oftentimes takes the shape of his cross. In Mark 8, 34, he tells his disciples, these same guys, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is what theologians call the cruciform life. The life of a disciple of Christ is one which takes the shape of his cross. Ministry in God's kingdom, discipleship and service to Jesus takes the form of suffering his cross of sacrifice. So doing great things in Jesus' name, great things in Jesus' power looks less like heroic spirituality and more like persevering in a broken world. It looks less like winning and more like bearing the heavy and oftentimes inconvenient burdens of your brothers and sisters and your neighbors. And those are not easy. So doing great things in Jesus' power, ministering in Jesus' name, looks less like Captain America and more like, it looks more like Jesus who took up his cross and he died so that he might save his 12 friends and so that he might save anyone who calls upon his name. that they might know and receive the greatest gift that could ever be known. 
himself. And then he calls his disciples to go and do ministry in his power, in his name, and to live a cruciform life, giving of themselves, sacrificing of themselves, knowing that they have the greatest gift that could ever be given. Let me close with this. Eckhard Schnabel, great name, says the foundational reality of discipleship is to be in the presence of Jesus, to hear and learn from his teaching and to be trained by him for the, mi- for the mission with which he entrusts us. My friends, to be called by Jesus is to be called to Jesus and for Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've given us a benefit that's greater than we, we, we could have ever imagined. You've given us your son. You've given us your greatest treasure that he might be our greatest treasure. And through him, you've given us everything that we could have ever wanted. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not confuse the gift with the giver. Lord, I, I pray that, that you would help us to align our lives with him, to, to, to direct ourselves to him and for him. Would you help us to spend time with him that we might more effectively proclaim him, that we might more effectively minister in his name for his glory. So it is in his name that we pray. Amen.